Hello, and welcome to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy, a podcast where our attorneys discuss how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Jeff Newby. I'm one of the partners at Weber Gallagher, and I'm in the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Department. And I'm joined today in the uh, our Workers' Compensation Academy podcast by my partner, Jen Laver, who works with me in the Mount Laurel office, and also my partner, Penelope Camano, who works in our Bedminster office. And I'm happy to have both of these folks with me today because they have tons of experience in a, an area of employment that is uh, extremely topical with what's going on with the pandemic, and that is in the hospital industry. So these guys are dealing with issues that are coming up frequently because of uh, everyone having to deal with the virus and its, and its uh, sequelae and the effects it's having on our population. So I'm glad to have both of you with me and I'm gonna ask some, you guys some questions today about various topics and um, hopefully you guys will, uh, folks listening will get something out of this. So the first thing that I uh, wanted to talk about, we're giving this uh, presentation or we're talking on Thursday, April 9th. So we're about uh, a month or so into the pandemic and its effect on all businesses and society and everybody's health. So uh, now that we're about a month into it, what I wanted to find out from you guys, and I'm going to ask Jen this first, uh, to what extent do you think the first responders statute uh, that's in effect in New Jersey and many other states, to what effect do you think it's going to uh, impact our clients and uh, some of the cases that we may see? Thanks, Jeff. Um, so there, normally you would evaluate these types of claims um, and they would have extreme difficulty because you would evaluate it under the Occupational Disease Standard, uh, which is NJSA 34 15-31. And that's a more probable than not uh, that the condition was produced. Um, and in that instance, um, I think it's really impossible to identify the source. Uh, however, on January 8th, 2019, uh, they created the First Responder Act, uh, which is NJSA 34, 15-31.3, which covers epidemic. Um, specifically, it deals with um, public safety workers, and um, public safety workers uh, include those who are um, approved by the New Jersey Office of Emergency Management, or a correctional facility, or a basic or advanced medical technician, a first aid or rescue squad, or any other nurse, basic or advanced medical technician responding to a catastrophic incident and directly involved and in contact with the public during such an incident, either as a volunteer, a member of the community response team, or employed or directed by healthcare facility. So in that instance, it's really key um, that they have to have the involvement with regard to it. So as you had mentioned, it could um, be someone who's working on the front lines in a hospital uh, that would potentially be covered by the first responder statute. And that statute um, has a different uh, burden where the occupational standard disease has more probable than not standard uh, this standard is a, there's a presumption uh, that it's related. Uh, however, keep in mind that presumption can be rebutted with preponderance of evidence showing the exposure is not linked. 
Uh, so there is investigation that can be done and questions that can be asked that could potentially uh, refute that presumption, uh, but it's an easier burden to prove if you're in those types of employment positions compared to uh, just any other employee who would be under the occupational disease standard. All right, thanks. Thanks, Jen. So, you know, Penelope, what I wanted to, what I want to flip to you then is based upon what Jen just told us and, to, you know, to tell our audience if, if, you know, if we're not correct, which I, I think we are, if someone qualifies then as a first responder and they present a workers' compensation claim and they have the medical proof to substantiate that they suffer from the coronavirus, it sounds like they, they you know, and I'm doing air quotes, they win unless we prove that they're not, they're not correct. They, their, their, their presumption is they got that at work and we need to prove, disprove that. Is that right? That is absolutely right. Um, and that's the difficulty with the First Responders Act for, on behalf of the respondents because now we have to show that they did not get it at work because they have shown the exposure. Now we have to uh, counter that. And that'll be quite difficult because based on what we're hearing from the media, from the doctors on the television, the president, the governors, um, everyone is exposed to this condition. So they have a presumption that they're getting it at work versus everyone else has to prove that they did not get it at work. So right. we're in a more difficult situation with first responders. So a lot, especially with the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the um, emergency room technicians, I would even go so far to say as people who are helping um, dispose of the demised patients, everyone there is having some type of exposure that I feel could be related, could be considered under the First Responders Act. Right, and you know, while we're all cheering on the first responders, you know, like everyone else is for their, you know, yeoman's work in, in this, you know, very, very difficult time, it's still our job to make sure that you know the statutes are filed and the burdens of proof are met. So I think one of the goals we'll probably have, and we discussed this offline, is trying to make sure that certain categories of employees don't attempt to be cloaked with this same presumption. You know, this should be limited to first responders and what the statute says. And because it's there for a reason, you know, uh, more likely than not, these people are, would, if they develop the disease, if they're constantly working with people that have it and they're treating them, then more likely than not, that's probably where they got it. So we understand the purpose of the statute. We want to make sure that it's just, you know, that it's lived up to and it, it you know, serves the, the goal that it, it's been passed for. Jen, well, what, that, what you... that's the key. They have to be involved. Um, and so it doesn't cover everyone just because you work at a hospital um, or it, just because you're an ambulance driver. It, it doesn't cover every single person. Um, so that's something that's important to keep in mind. And the other thing is that um, you can you can rebut it. So it will be difficult, but there's uh, information and there could be, you know, uh, they could have multiple jobs and they could be working at multiple locations. Um, they could also have come in contact with someone at home or traveled somewhere. So there are questions that you have to ask. It's not just an automatic, uh, yes, this would be related. Um, there's a lot of investigation that would need to be done. The other problem that you have is uh, not everyone's getting tested. So just because you're, um, you have to prove that you actually tested positive for COVID-19 and that's not, um, we know that there's some issues with regard to testing. Um, and if you're offered testing from your employer and you don't get tested and then you try and break a claim, 
um, I, I think you're going to have some difficulty because you have to actually show that you tested positive and that's not always the situation. So just because you think you have it doesn't mean that you actually uh, have it. Plus the fact that we have the, uh, the two week um, period that between exposure and manifestation of the condition and a person or any of these employees could be potentially exposed in a number of places that are not employment. Um, I know Jen, Jennifer and I had discussed many a time, we're going to have to be very careful with our hospital facilities that we represent because, for example, um, if you're working in labor and delivery, you wouldn't necessarily be exposed. You know, if you are in a different unit, you may not. And we may see an, uh, a number of cases come through where people are alleging that they were exposed there and they may not have been. Right. So, um, it's very important to get as much information as we can on the people who have been exposed. Um, just for example, today I answered a question on a case where um, the woman was a nurse at a nursing home and um, she developed symptomology one day, 100.6 fever, three days later, 100.1 with malaise, coughing, uh, two days later, fell, difficulty um, breathing. They goes to the hospital. All they get is the fact that um, she had bilateral pneumonia. Now she's dead. She died. And the employer, yes, there are exposures on the premises, but we don't know if she was tested for COVID-19. And now we have no, I mean, it seems to that she may not have any dependents, but we have no way of confirming whether or not it was a death for that. So I recommended that they initially deny this claim until they have the opportunity to figure out whether or not she had it. We don't know at this point. And that may happen to a lot of people if we don't know that they're tested. So Jen has a good point with that. And you know, before we get to the next topic, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think it's, um, I don't know if it's problematic or um, disconcerting, but with the change in seasons and the temperature, a lot of people, this is allergy seasons. And, you know, the, this, the mimic symptoms between some of the allergies and, and some of the, the virus symptoms is a, it's a little bit uh, disconcerting. If you suddenly, your, your throat starts to bother you a little bit or you're, or you're coughing and things of that nature, it could be nothing more or less than seasonal allergies. So, um, oh, I can tell you that uh, last week I had tightness in the chest and some coughing. And all of a sudden, the whole day, I was taking my temperature, taking my temperature, and uh, next day I was fine. So it, it, it's really easy to get caught up in the hysteria, and I think that the, our employers and our clients need to be able to um, calm some of their employees down as they're going through these processes and getting these phone calls on a daily basis from people saying, hey, I don't feel well today, I can't come in, for those that are still working. Well, Penelope, that's a perfect segue, especially using the word hysteria into our next topic. <laughs> so, <laughs> Our next topic is um, what types of unique cases or maybe derivative type of claims do, uh, do you see that may be coming as a result of this pandemic and, and the virus being contracted? In addition to um, potential pulmonary claims that we may see if people have the COVID-19 and have permanent um, pulmonary uh, disability as they're scarring to the lungs and so forth, I do see um, that we're going to see, I think, a number of derivative psychiatric occupational claims, um, especially from the first responders 
who are day after day um, being put in situations where people are dying. Yes, doctors and nurses and EMTs, um, that is part of their employment. Regularly they have patients that die, but we're dealing with a situation that's never been seen before with the pandemic, with hundreds of people dying, coming in. And I think the wear and tear of being there exposed to this could essentially result in some post-traumatic, um, uh, some PTSD claims. Um, the standard for occupational um, psych and occupational claims is more probable than not. Um, it also is um, a compensable occupational disease shall include all diseases arising out of and in the course of employment, which are due in material degree to causes and conditions which are or were characteristic of a peculiar trade. Um, we have that with the first responders, definitely. Um, I see them being the people who will um, probably need some treatment and may potentially file claims. Um, we also um, have to beware of people. Those may be very legitimate claims, but we also have to be aware of people because they work in a hospital and a friend has passed away or developed it. They, be, they develop a psychosis because they feel that they're going to get it. That necessarily wouldn't be compensable because they're not being exposed in that situation. Um, so for first, for doctors, uh, nurses, EMTs, people dealing right there with the people dying in day in and day out, I could see those derivative site claims. Other people may file, it's case by case sensitive and we're gonna really have to comb through the facts of each case. And that's why again, investigation is very important. Any information you can get now, so long as it's not overly intrusive, um, is very beneficial for the claims, which I feel are not gonna happen now, they're going to happen about three to six months after the pandemic subsides or is under control. As people start to uh, become stressed, have nightmares, they're anxious, depression, etc. So I don't see that happening immediately. I see that happening about six months down the road, if this is under control by May 1st. So it, it, um, you, were, you were describing what are various scenarios and for the, those people that are listening, the way us attorneys look at psychiatric claims, we categorize them in three different ways. <clears throat> we categorize mental mental, which is stress leading to psychiatric claim, mental physical. So there's stress leading to a physical result, like having a heart attack or a stroke due to stress. And then there's physical mental, where you have a disability, whether it's orthopedic or pulmonary leading to psychiatric. So the, the, the issue that you were describing or the scenario, that was mental mental with, which, with frontline responders suffering from, uh, I think it'll probably be more of a depression type of thing due yes. to the number of maybe fatalities that they have to deal with at a particular facility. And the burden of proof ordinarily in a mental mental is that they're subjected to objectively stressful work conditions. And I think, I think depending upon the circumstances of that facility and what that person had to deal with, they can meet that objectively stressful work condition that it's, yeah, they deal with life and death, but not, not on this scale. So I think, I think only, you're just... I'm sorry, Jeff, uh, not only that, the fact is that what they're dealing with at work, they could be bringing home to their families and exposing their families, which I think adds an extra component to that. But you, you also have to keep in mind that um, for some of these claims, it may be a lot of the, um, 
hospitals are offering, they have different EAP programs, they're offering different uh, people to talk with, to help. And this may not be something that's done right now, given um, the situation, but it may be something after the fact that they um, receive some limited minimal treatment, but there may never be a claim because um, once they're able to talk about it or get control uh, of the situation and understanding of, you know, that this is an epidemic and really what occurred, they may not be filing claims or they may not have permanency. It may just be a limited course of treatment. Um, I think the other thing that we also potentially could see um, are increased orthopedic claims, given that some of these individuals are working longer or they're doing more work than they may normally do, whether it be a, a person at a supermarket or someone in the hospital setting or, or any of these types of, um, any of the employees that are still allowed to work. Uh, a lot of the companies maybe are cutting down on the number of employees that are working, but the hours that they're working are longer. So you potentially could see some additional uh, claims, uh, probably likely occupational claims with regard to increased orthopedic complaints um, due to that. But again, they still have the burden of proof that it was related and that they actually have an injury. And so, so that's not necessarily um, proven, but it's a type of claim that I think we could see. And also um, everyone's working at a quicker pace because they're trying to deal with um, either the, the increased need for um, products or in the hospitals, more and more patients coming in until we see a flattening out of the curve of people being admitted to the hospital. So they have this need probably self-imposed too, to treat as many people as possible, get to the next patient, get to the next patient, which is out of the ordinary of the regular busyness of these hospital situations. So that can lead to increased orthopedic claims as well. You know, we discussed before um, we started the, the podcast, the um, possibility of claims being filed where the individual is contending that they have a psychiatric disability due to fear of developing you know, the coronavirus. So what I wanted to ask Jen before we move on to the next topic is if you could you know, let our audience know what the three of us thought about the concept of somebody who did not, did not test positive for the coronavirus, did not suffer from it, but files a claim because of the, the, the concern and the fear. They had developed depression and anxiety because coworkers developed that. And you know, people in their, in their you know, obviously in their family and circle wouldn't be work-related, but let's say coworkers developed it. And as a result, they contend that they have anxiety and depression. Um, I think uh, uh, unlike many of the other topics that we felt like the judges will be far more receptive to the arguments, we're not so sure about this scenario. What, what do you think about that, Jen? Yeah, I, I do not see that claim being able to, um, to succeed. Uh, they actually have to be involved. It has to be them specifically. Uh, we had a, a, an example that we discussed about um, there was the flight attendant who was supposed to work on 9-11 and didn't. Um, and her claim, her psychiatric claim, uh, she did not prevail in that case because of the fact that she wasn't working. She wasn't there. So just because you have a, a friend who passed away, that doesn't make it work related. And that's the key. Um, you could have a friend who works at a hospital and you could be unemployed and you still will have that same feeling. You could be having, just because they're a friend, 
doesn't make it, and you work in the hospital doesn't make it work-related. Uh, and that's the key, that there's that separation. It has nothing to do with what you're doing with your job. Uh, it does not make it work-related. And I think that those claims will not succeed. And, and I think that um, most, uh, most people are aware of that. I think the only site claim that will have a chance of success would be someone who is actually dealing with uh, the handling of patients with this uh, condition. Right. Otherwise, the, uh, the sphere of compensability and the sphere of claims will become really um, daunting. And I think the courts are going to draw a line at some point because to an extent, every one of us is going to be dealing with the, the side effects of, of friends and family members suffering from this and coworkers. So Exactly. And don't forget, it has to arise out of and in the course of employment. And if you're upset because your coworker got sick, that's not in the course of your employment. So um, that would make it non-compensable. Um, just going back to the point of the, the in-house programs a lot of these facilities have, we would recommend that our employers send um, any of the first respondents, responders who have any feelings like that there first because it really could take care of the problem without having to open a workers' comp claim for it. And we would recommend to you going um, down that road versus having it be workers' compensation, if possible. All right, the uh, next topic I wanted to talk about, um, and I'm gonna start out with Jen and ask you, Jen, thus far, what effect have you seen that the virus has had on ongoing medical treatment, um, scheduling of IMEs, second opinions for need for, for treatment, uh, permanency evaluations, now the treatment has concluded. What have you seen, uh, what effect have you seen from the, the virus and the quarantining, et cetera, on that, uh, that, that part of our practice? So um, many of the PERM evaluators uh, have canceled or postponed evaluations, uh, at least for a period of time. There are those that are still ongoing um, and that's really up to the individual employee. So it's up to the individual doctor and the individual employee uh, if they wanna go. Uh, we don't wanna force anyone to go to any appointments that they don't feel comfortable attending um, because of their fear of getting infected, that, that's reasonable. Um, so most, uh, as long as you provide notice, uh, especially one of the concerns is uh, if you aren't feeling well, don't go. Just call your attorney, let that let your attorney know. You know, we've made that clear that if someone's not feeling well, uh, most of the providers are waiving any no-show fees, so that's not an issue. Um, with regard to medical treatment, some of the doctors are open, some of the doctors aren't. Um, some of the doctors are open and scheduling appointments, but they're not scheduling them till the middle of May. Um, some of the physical therapist locations are open, some are not. I know that um, surgeries right now are being canceled. Uh, the, the governor has made clear that, that any elective surgery is to be canceled. So that's something that's going to, um, most surgeries are going to be put on hold uh, and we can expect that at least uh, ongoing for a period of time and they'll just have to be rescheduled. Uh, any treatment that's put on hold will just be rescheduled or continue to push it out. Uh, but it really, it's the comfort level for each of the doctors. Um, we're not going to force any of the doctors to come in and treat patients, uh, and the same for the injured employee. They, if they don't want or feel comfortable to go forward with treatment at this point, um, the treatment will just be put on hold. And Penelope, that leads me to my next question for you. Um, 
uh, I, we all know the answer to this, but you know, we can tell the audience what we think. Uh, what do you think of the, of the likelihood of, of a respondent being successful in suspending temporary total disability benefits because an injured worker is not attending hands-on examinations by doctors? I would recommend that our clients and employers <laughs> don't go there because um, the truth of the matter is um, we in the state of New Jersey under the, are under the uh, Governor Murphy's orders to stay home. And if a person, even though a facility may be open and seeing people, we can't make them go to those appointments if they feel uncomfortable about it. And we cannot penalize them. It's really a should versus a could. You could potentially terminate it, but should you in light of the pandemic, I don't think we would be viewed favorably within our courts. The judges would frown upon us and we could potentially uh, see ourselves in a couple of sanction situations, I think, because of we're dealing with a national emergency. It changes everything. It changes the course of business. Now, um, so I, if people are just not attending because they're afraid, we cannot terminate temporary disability benefits. I want to say it again and again, because I know there's a number of people out there who have employees that are currently treating. Um, we can try to facilitate with them the telemedicine, having them do programs like physical therapy. Maybe they could even Zoom a physical therapist and do a program and exercises at home. Maybe they can go call the pain management doctor and have a, tele, a teleconference. Um, there could be other ways to continue the treatment and keep our cases going, which is always our goal. But in situations where you have maybe people who don't have a computer and don't have that ability, um, they'll say, well, I don't know how to Zoom. I can't do this, I can't do that. We're unfortunately going to have to stick it out and continue paying them the benefits until this subsides. So now the there. the only thing that I did want to point out is that there are certain uh, we did have uh, a group of attorneys suggest one of the perm evaluators being agreeable, one of their evaluators being agreeable to doing telemed perm evaluations. Uh, that is a no no. Uh, that is not something that the respondents bar. Uh, at least I know our office would not agree to because you're missing that evaluation component. Um, and yes, we do records reviews in the event that someone has passed away, but that's not the situation. You could just postpone the permanency evaluation uh, so that you can get a complete evaluation and understanding as the petitioner's limitations. Uh, so it's our position that perm evaluations should not be telemed. Um, a psychiatric evaluation may be the exception to that, uh, but for the most part, really, it's treatment exams. Uh, a lot of the providers, even orthopedic providers, are doing telemedicine just to continue keeping treatment ongoing, as you had said, with regard to physical therapy, medications, things like that, um, and, and just checking in with their patients. But uh, perm evaluations, I think, would be an, an exception, and potentially even IMEs. Um, you know, if it's a need for treatment exam and it needs to be in person, you have to keep it in person. I think it's kind of funny that the petitioners, petitioners bar has recommended that because, as all of us know, in the past, we've received many a complaint that our permanency doctors don't even touch the petitioners when they see them during an evaluation. There's always been complaints of that, and now they're suggesting that it go completely televised. So I thought that was ironic, uh, considering the uh, circumstances. So the next topic I wanted to get into um, is, uh, as we know, on April 6th, 
the uh, courts opened back up virtually. And I wanted to find out from, from you, Penelope, if you could give, give our listeners an idea, how has that been going so far? And um, you know, what exactly is the, um, the virtual court procedures in New Jersey and, and uh, are they able to accomplish anything? And so far, what are they accomplishing? So as you said, on April 6th, for the first time ever, we did virtual court and started within the Division of Workers' Compensation. Even though the court is officially closed and allowing no, none of the public through April 27th, um, 2020, which may be extended, we don't know. We're here you know, day to day based on Governor Murphy's recommendations. Um, but um, one judge from each vistage and from each venue is available via telephone every day and conducts and runs all the lists that day, including um, in that particular vicinage. For example, normally each of us have a different judge on potentially the same day. Now, the same judge, which is usually the presiding judge in each vicinage, will be running the list for each, um, for each judge on that day. Um, however, there has to be a lot of cooperation involved and a lot of um, pre- um, pre-list contact with your adversaries. The judges have asked all of us to um, provide them with our markings within 24 hours of the hearing, um, reach out to our adversaries to see where we are. Um, most, um, the judges, I would say their primary um, goal is to keep the settlements going on all cases. And for the first time, um, we are, um, no, I'm sorry, we are going to do um, settlements via order approving settlement, as well as section 20 via settlements. However, um, being an, we're doing certifications as well as affidavits. The rules of evidence are relaxed. We don't necessarily require notary signatures on these. Um, however, a lot of the judges are putting in um, verbiage that says that there will be no transcript. Um, of the process due to the COVID-19 emergency. However, because we're putting all the complaints and the affidavits and certifications, that, that should not be a problem. Um, however, each vicinage is different. Some judges are having court reporters be there. Um, some vicinages, no. Um, as to testimony and um, trials and motions for med and temp, um, I heard directly from one of my judges that she is not starting any motions for medical and temporary disability benefits. Um, she will conference the cases and perhaps recommend that a respondent provide benefits without prejudice until this subsides, but she will not be starting trials. While I know some of the judges in South Jersey um, are going to take testimony via Zoom and or teleconference with a court reporter being available. So um, this judge will is calling all the respondents and telling them when they're scheduled to be called. Some judges will call you directly. Other judges are asking that the respondents call and that we arrange all the phone calls between um, the petition attorneys for all our cases. So that's basically it. Jen, anything to add? Anything um, unique that you're seeing for, on your end on this topic of the virtual court? Just more, I, I think it's a judge by judge situation um, and it, it's, uh, it, it takes time. Um, it's very, very different than everything we've done before. And it really depends on what supervising judge. And one of the problems that you see sometimes is because it's a supervising judge um, and we're not really sure what, how each of the judges are handling it, um, you may be for a judge that you don't normally have. 
So there may be, you may have a more liberal judge than you're used to or a more conservative judge. So uh, you may have someone who would approve a section 20 in one instance and won't in this instance. So, um, or you may have the opposite. So it's gonna be a little bit uh, different and you can't expect that everything's gonna run smoothly, um, but it's really just uh, touching base with the attorney to find out what, uh, what you can do to move the case along, if anything, and to get it settled. Also, um, the judges are cognizant that some um, respondents and insurance carriers will not allow their settlements to go through this way. So they would be putting off those settlements until mid-May or whenever we are back in court on a regular basis. They recognize that certain settlements, because they're um, particularly large or they have certain issues, um, the clients have the right to object to proceed in this manner, and they're respecting that right. And I just wanted the, um, you know, the audience to realize that these judges are working with a skeleton crew uh, of support. So they're as much a head cook and bottle washer as they've ever been. And they're not handling their 45 or 50 case list. New Jersey is a volume state with court lists, uh, you know, the majority of which are handled relatively quickly at the call of the list or in the morning with the status. But they're handling three judges lists. So these judges in a given day may have to touch and look at 150 cases. So we're all gonna have to be patient with the judges and hope that it goes as smoothly as possible. And all the cases that are really not ready for movement uh, are taken care of quickly by the, uh, by the attorneys, letting the judge know these cases can move you know, to the next cycle or two, uh, but these five could use your attention. They're settled, here's the paperwork, that kind of thing. So fingers crossed uh, that, uh, and I know people are in our office have settled cases um, this week and hopefully that will continue. Um, I wanted to move on to our next couple topics so we can wrap up and let people get back to their to their lives. Not that I was gonna say busy lives. I'm not sure how busy people are these days, but it, it does vary. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, temp issues just for a minute. And I'm gonna uh, start off by asking Jen this question, you know, because um, we're, we're facing this issue, uh, whether or not uh, you think and you've recommended to clients to reinstate temporary total disability benefits for an injured worker who's on light duty, actively treating, but and under this scenario, I want you to assume that the entire department or company has been either furloughed or laid off from their job, so everybody has been sent home. All right, well, uh, the first thing is, uh, I would recommend if that's the situation that you furlough the injured uh, employee who's working light duty, but I, I don't think temporary disability benefits would be owed in that instance because the reason that they're not working has nothing to do with their uh, restrictions. Or rather, the individual uh, would and should apply for unemployment as they are ready, willing, and able to work. And the only reason they're not working has nothing to do with their work injury, but it has to do with the fact that they were furloughed or laid off. Uh, the reason that a furlough would be easier is just it's, it's much easier to reinstate them um, than if someone was laid off. So the one thing to keep in mind is if unemployment runs out, you would have to reinstate temporary disability benefits at that point. And if there was a return to work for some workers, uh, but not the injured employee, then you would have to reinstate temporary disability benefits at that point, because let's say the light duty job is no longer possible or available uh, in that instance, then you would wanna notify them of that, tell them to stop playing unemployment, um, that you're returning some of the workers, but not them, and then you would uh, reinstate temp at that point. But really, uh, because they can say to unemployment they're ready, willing, and able to work, 
uh, and this had to do with the uh, epidemic and not with their work injury, applying for unemployment would be reasonable. Right, and as you said, if they were to be denied unemployment, that's a different story. That's when workers' comp should step in because uh, we're not trying to injure these people or hurt them financially. But if it's the pandemic that's causing the wage loss and not their disability, then they, would, they should be on equal footing with everyone else who's been furloughed or laid off due to the pandemic. And as you said, if they're furloughed, they're still attached to the employer, they're still on the payroll, they're still an employee, perhaps, and hopefully still getting medical benefits and coverage if they had it beforehand. But um, to say that they're unable to find a job as equally as a co-employee because they're on a light duty status should not be the case because the reason that they're out in the workforce potentially looking for a job, but they are furloughed, so they're still employed, as you said, is really due to the, the pandemic and not, not due to their disability. But if for any reason the state uh, can't kick in and CARES Act isn't helping them uh, replace their wages and push comes to shove, workers' comp should, have, should step up and make sure that these people have a check to pay their bills. Penelope, would you have something to add to this topic? I was just going to add what you just said, that if the furlough is a con the, the difference between a furlough and a layoff is that the furlough is a continuing relationship with the employer while when you're laid off, it's a termination of that relationship and the possibility of medical care depending on the employer that can continue with the furlough. But, but, but that's not guaranteed though. Right. Well, these topics uh, continue to evolve. We're um, still in the throes of this, hopefully. You know, they were hoping that this week or next, we're, uh, especially in this area, New York, New Jersey, and maybe Pennsylvania, we're at the, at the peak and we're gonna be going on the other side, hopefully in the next week or two. So you know, if there's any wood around, knock your wood and hopefully everybody stays safe, um, keeps doing all their, uh, all their self-protection, et cetera. And um, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any questions you wanna follow up, you can with either the three of us, and um, uh, or, and you, we have other podcasts and webinars that you can uh, check out on our website. If you just go to WG University, you'll see them all there. Thank you both for joining me and everybody uh, stay safe and have a uh, great rest of the week and happy Easter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy. We hope you join us for our next episode to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.